Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's been my privilege to teach in the area of Old Testament for a good part of the latter part of my career. But early on, I was teaching Greek and theology and Bible and New Testament primarily in a small school outside of, the, outside of New York City. And they asked me to teach a um, biblical theology course. And I said, uh, Old Testament biblical theology, since that had been my training. And they said, no. Uh, the whole Bible, um, which is a, a daunting task to begin with, uh, especially if you've specialized in a particular testament. But it was excellent for me to have that exposure to teach New Testament, to teach Greek, and to be called upon to teach uh, a biblical theology of the entire Bible because so often with specialization, uh, biblical theologians will just speak of one testament. There are biblical theologies of the Old Testament that will mention the documents of the ancient world more than they will mention the New Testament because after all, that's New Testament and we're Old Testament. And so to be able to think in terms of the whole story is an excellent opportunity. Then later, while at Columbia, they asked me to teach a course on the biblical theology of mission. And that was also a stretch because it got me into some parts of the scripture that normally aren't covered in a biblical theology. But it reinforced once again that this is one whole story that needs to be synthesized into a, a, a systematic presentation of what the Bible says. And the background in Old Testament theology and New Testament th theology uh, was, was um, amplified by means of this very practical orientation to the theology of mission. I'm going to be relying very heavily on the work of a friend of mine, Dr. Warren Gage. Uh, 30 years ago or so, uh, we, um, we read his book, The Gospel of Genesis, Studies in Protology and Eschatology. Uh, he did this as a postdoctoral study in Germany for a year at Tübingen under um, Helmut Geza. And what he observed was that in the book of Genesis, you have episodes, uh, episodes of, you have an episode of creation, and then you have a repetition or a parallelism within the book that takes some of the topics found in the first part of Genesis and repeats them, modifies them, and describes another act of, or an act of redemption in the flood. And he then thought, if, if we can, if, if we can see this parallelism in the book of Genesis, can we see it throughout Scripture? And so he, he, sought to, he sought to look at those great moments of redemption and ask the question, are these styled in creation terms? That is, do we see a picture of the creator God at work in these great acts of redemption? 
And his first chapter is on the creator-redeemer theme or motif. A motif is just simply a feature that runs through a body of work. And so there are certain themes that appear again and again and again. That would be a motif. Now you're going to think if you look at that book that I've relied very heavily on him, um, perhaps even filched a good bit of his material, um, and I have, and, but it's, uh, we're in an academic institution and there's free use. As long as I acknowledge it, that would be, that would be okay. But also, um, while, at, uh, while Ruth and I were at Dallas, uh, her sister would come down and visit and uh, Dr. Gage uh, met her sister and um, married her, so he owes me big time. This is just, uh, <laughs> should not be a problem. The first act of redemption or deliverance in the book of Genesis has to do with Genesis 6 to 9. And this would be the, the story of Noah and the flood. And what we will see is that there are parallels between Noah and, uh, and Adam who was before him. The description of the events are quite similar. Now, uh, not as much as when we get into other acts of deliverance that are found in Scripture, but um, enough so that it can at least get us started and we can see that they, there are some points of parallel between these accounts. The first of these has to do with Noah and the pairing of the animals. Now we know that the animals came in two by two for Noah, but what about Adam? Is there a suggestion perhaps, and we have a question mark here, is there a suggestion that the animals came to Adam two by two. And I think that we might have some justification for this because Adam is naming the animals as they come to him. And then the text says there was no, there was no corresponding uh, person for him. When Eve comes to him, he goes, this time, uh, in this situation, leading me to believe that he saw a male and female hippopotamus and a male and female giraffe and a male and female and he's saying Where, where's the other one of me when he names her he names her isha uh, which looks like it's the feminine form of the word ish she is the female me and so it might be that the the animals were uh, brought two by two to adam more convincing is that we have the image uh, of god continuing we would think well after the fall the image of god is destroyed uh, distorted or destroyed but you recall that God says that if a man kills, then society has the obligation to take his life because he has taken the life of a person who is in the image of God. The image of God continues after the fall. But more pointedly, and uh, I think direct, is the parallel to the commission that is given to Noah. In 128, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. We see similar wording of Noah with, I think, an important difference, and that is, God will say to Noah, but as for you, be fruitful and multiply. This is the same wording. Be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. You can see that there's this commonality of wording just uh, that many chapters apart. It is obviously intended to show us that this is the, a commission that is like the commission of Adam with one important difference, 
the capacity or the office to rule is not present. That's going to be developed later in parallelism that we will discuss later. There are also, we could say, there are also parallels between Noah and Adam with respect to the fall. And so both uh, Adam and Noah, Adam and Eve and Noah, imbibe of the fruit, and uh, both of them um, are involved in a, um, uh, recognize their nakedness, or at least uh, Adam and Eve recognized their nakedness, and, and Noah was found to be naked, and they were banished to the east. And the, the cardinal point east is sometimes used in Scripture as an emblem or as a figure for banishment or punishment. And it begins here in Genesis with the banishment of Adam and the banishment of, uh, of Noah. There is a sense in which Noah is the second Adam, Christ being the ultimate second Adam, but also the, the final Adam. That's the first great act of redemption that comes to us in the scripture. The next comes to us in the deliverance out of Egypt. And there are certain parallels that are found, uh, groups of parallels that are found between the events of the Exodus and the events of the garden. The first of these has to do with the parallelism of the creative days. In the first part of Genesis, it is darkness that, that is upon the face, the surface of the deep, and God says, let there be light. And then there is a separation of light and darkness. The waters divide and, and find, uh, find two locations in Genesis 1. The dry land emerges, and we have in that section of six creative days, God speaking ten times. When we come to the the exodus out of Egypt, we see that God separates light and darkness on at least two occasions. One where you had the plague that was upon Egypt, where it was dark, a, a darkness you could feel for three days, solid darkness for those, I suppose, 72 hours. And then in Israel, it was the normal day-night cycle. That would be a division. This would be the, the God who, who separated light from darkness is the one who separates light from darkness here. We also have the event at the Red Sea where the Jews, uh, the, the Hebrews at this point we'll call them, the Hebrews are backed up against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is coming. The cloud uh, descends between the two camps. It's light on one side and it's a, a dark foreboding storm on the other that kept them apart with enough time for the children of Israel to escape. We also have the word dry land. Dry land is used in both contexts. They walk across on dry land. And then finally, we have the 10 words. The 10 words are what Deuteronomy calls the 10 commandments. And the rabbis of the Old Testament, uh, they, they saw a connection between the 10 words that were found at uh, the initial creation and the 10 commandments. And their take on this was that the 10 uh, the ten words of creation brought together or, or gave to us the, the physical world, and the ten words gives, gives to us the moral world. And, and so the, there, there's certainly a parallelism going on here. What we might make of it would be another matter. 
In this account, we also have parallels to Adam and Eve. There are certain things said about the experience of Noah that are similar to the experience of Adam and Eve. Uh, We have, for example, that God plants a garden in Eden and then places man and woman into it. Now, it doesn't say, it doesn't use the word plant of the people, but he did plant a garden and then he set in place our first parents. He gave to them a birth mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And um, when we, uh, and this, this woman would, uh, would also be called Eve because she would be the mother of all living. And the, the name Eve in Hebrew derives from the root that has the idea of uh, life, uh, giving life. The parallel to that would be the children of Israel. After chapter 14 of Exodus, which is the episode of the parting of the Red Sea, we get the poem, uh, The Song of the Sea. And in that, he says, you have redeemed your people. God has redeemed his people, and he will plant them in the land. And that land elsewhere is described as the garden of God. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a a land of abundance. It's a land of uh, lots of, plenty of water. And so we we get the idea that uh, this is God's garden and he's planting his children into that garden. When we go to Exodus 1-7, we see that the children of Israel multiplied and they were filling the earth. They were filling the whole land. Doesn't mention subduing, but it does mention that they were fruitful, they multiplied and they they were filling up the land. And it's no wonder the Pharaoh thought we're going to have problems here. And so he determined that he, would, that, that he would slow that growth down by killing the male children. We also have the parallel that the midwives, and this one's perhaps not as strong as the others, the midwives in talking to the Pharaoh said, we, we can't get to the birth quickly enough. These women are lively and they give birth quickly. They're not like Egyptian women. And that word for lively is that same root from which we get the word life uh, and uh, reminiscent, sounding very similar to the name Eve. These are little Eves, uh, to, if we can think in terms of our theology. These, these were, were being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and they were, they, they were the product of our first parents, our first mother. So we have the creation day parallel, and we've got parallels to Adam and Eve, two categorically different systems of parallels, but we have one more that we normally don't speak of in the text because often we don't know the background of the ancient world that is informing some of this theology. And so we have in Exodus that Egypt is described as, um, uh, well, let me back up. The, um, these would be called polemic parallels. Polemic comes from the Greek word polemos, which means warfare. Anytime you have a attack a system of thought, you are going into a polemical mode. Ravi Zacharias, when he analyzes the 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 current culture and he points out the the internal consistencies, when he looks ahead and says, "If you believe this, this is going to happen," he's and then he and then he gives an apology for Christianity, he's actually attacking. Now, he's attacking very nicely. He's a fine gentleman. But he's, he's attacking a system of thought. Well, Scripture is not above attacking a system of thought. And so we have in 
the Exodus story uh, language that is similar to the Babylonian creation story. And in part, the, the purpose of this is to show that Yahweh is superior to anything that calls itself God, anything that other peoples worship. And there are two that we would point at from the, uh, from the exodus out of Egypt. One of these is the destruction of the sea monster, and the other is the building a habitation. And we just want to read a little portion of, the, of uh, Isaiah on this to kind of get a feel for the description. We're quoting Isaiah, even though it's of the Exodus, because Isaiah is referring to the Exodus. He's describing that event that took place at the time of the Exodus. And he says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? I thought, why would he do that? She's she's really a nice lady. and she's commended in, in Hebrews 11. Why? Well, it's a different word. Uh, spelled the same in English, but not the same in Hebrew. He cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the deeps of the sea as a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? Didn't you do that back then at the Exodus? Didn't you cut the sea monster? Didn't you divide the waters into two parts, a wall on each side? That would be described figuratively as cutting the sea monster. The um, Babylonians believed that their god, uh, the patron god of the city of Babylon was Marduk. They believed that Marduk was the one who engaged the sea monster in battle, defeated her, cut her in half, and with one half created the heavens and with the other half created the earth. This subduing of the sea monster would be something that they would look back on and say, oh, well, yeah, the Marduk, uh, Marduk did that. Uh, God says, no, um, I, don't, um, I don't want you to believe for a minute that Marduk is the God that did that. I divided the sea monster. I can't believe I did air quotes. Um, the <laughs> and after the, the, the slain of the sea monster created the earth and then created man, so that, so that the creation was, uh, the, the building of the, the creating of the world was the struggle that took place between Marduk and the sea monster. God just said, Moses, I want you to uh, hold up your rod and it's going to part. It was really no problem for God to do this. He is the one who destroyed the sea monster, as it were. But we also have after this that the gods of Babylon, when they saw what Marduk had done, they said, let's build a sanctuary. Let's build a place where you can rest. And when we are on our travels, we can come and rest. And it'll be called the sanctuary and it'll be great for us because now that you've created man, they can do all the work. We don't have to work anymore. We can rest in your sanctuary. But Exodus 15 picks up on this imagery as well. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, a place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, and the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Creation first, the building of the sanctuary, and then rulership. We mention that because sometimes we think that perhaps the major picture of God would be that he is the king. And that's certainly a dominant theme. The kingdom of God is a dominant theme in Scripture. 
But prior to that is the creation. Marduk um, ruled over the earth because he created the earth in their story of creation. God says, no, I created the earth. I rule over the earth. The... um, The building of the habitation is represented by God um, having the entire nation as a habitation. The entire nation was his sanctuary, but also that sanctuary in Jerusalem would, would picture the land, which would also be a picture of Eden, but we don't have time to get into that portion of the parallelism. The next great event of deliverance is with the Babylonian, deliverance from the Babylonian captivity. And there we have a number of categorically different um, topics that we need to look at that point to parallelisms with the original creation. The first is that the um, creator is their redeemer. The, the term create that's used in Genesis, in the beginning God created, is used more in Isaiah than any other book. And the doctrine of creation is featured in Isaiah more than any other book. Because God is saying, I am the God who is tougher, bigger than Marduk, and I'm going to deliver you. And, um, and so he, uh, he calls himself, and Isaiah calls him by the word for creator. But there are also other words that are used. Uh, Isaiah uses to create, to fashion, and this is a picture of the potter, to lay a foundation, to, to establish or lay a foundation, to build, as in construct a building, and also to stretch out the heavens like a tent curtain, to have this big cosmic tent that is the entire world. Uh, these, are, these are words that are used of the Lord, and we see it in such places as uh, in 40 verses 27 to 31. The creator of the ends of the earth, he is called. This is the one who's going to bring them out of captivity. Your creator, 43.1. One who formed you, I have redeemed you. Your husband is your maker, 54.5, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And so God is, is called by all these names directly, and it's a reference back to the original creation. We also have that redemption itself is the work of a creator. Not that Yahweh is the creator, but rather Yahweh does actions uh, reminiscent of creation in bringing them to deliverance. Uh, he will say in 41.20 uh, that he is the creator of a new order. And it mentions differing trees that are going to grow together. And the thing about these trees is they no- wouldn't normally grow in the same area. There's going to be a reconfiguration of the, uh, of the, of the land that would support these different, um, these, these different types of trees. Now, we... We could go very literal on that, and some do. We could say that that's more figuratively, but certainly it's talking about a creation of a new order. The creator is one who stretches out the heavens, 42.5 and following, gives breath to the people or spirit to the people. And in that same context, it talks about the servant who brings light. And so we have creator, stretcher, breath in the lungs of people, and the presence of one who brings light. In 43.14, the creator God is forming Israel. He's he's bringing them into a new deliverance. 44.24, your redeemer is your maker. 
is the maker of all things. 45, 7 and 11 and following. He is the creator, the one who formed them, the maker, bringing redemption. 45, he's the creator who did not create it a waste. And the Hebrew word there is tohu. He will redeem. Now that word tohu is found in Genesis. Uh, the earth was without form and void. Well, the expression there is tohu vabohu. That's uh, one of those funny Hebrew things to say. If someone says, say something in Hebrew, you can say tohu vabohu. It's, uh, it's without form, it's without shape, and it's without, it's without uh, filling, it's, it's without inhabitants, perhaps, is the interpretation. But he, God says, my original creation, I didn't create it a mess. It was, it was, I created it to be fully formed. I'm gonna do the same thing with you. You're going back into the land and you're going to be fully formed when you get back there. In 48.15, the founder, the, the one who lays the foundation, is acting against Babylon. In 51.12 and following, the maker is at work to accomplish his work. Marduk is not doing this. The God of Israel is doing this. We have in Isaiah 65.17 and following, this is what Yahweh says of his restoration. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. There's a debate among theologians. This is talking about a literal new heavens and new earth, a la the book of the Revelation. Or is this talking about expressing in a poetic way the fact that God is going to make things really different? He's going, to, he's going to establish something that's really different. And, and good theologians are divided on this issue. We have in 6517, uh, or in uh, the, uh, this, this would be the, the number of times that God is either called directly the creator or his actions are described in creation terms. There are many of them. There are some that aren't as strong, some that are perhaps a little shakier, in their parallelism, but these, we just can't deny that the mind of Isaiah is in the stories of Genesis and God as creator. We also have polemic parallels that are at work, even as we did in the Exodus out of Egypt. It says that God creates and names the host of heaven, and because of the power of his word, not one of them is missing. Now we look at that and say, well, God knows the names of all the uh, seven sisters of the Pleiades, uh, he knows all the names of the stars of Cassiopeia. Uh, but that's not what they would have heard in this context because attached to these stars were thought to be gods. And these gods would give omens uh, in the astrological uh, table that would, uh, the, that would uh, tell what was going to happen in the future. What he's saying is, I know the name of each god and when I call, he has to come out and do his tricks. Because of the greatness of the word of God, not one of them is going to be missing. He is the sovereign over all so-called gods. And in fact, later he will say, these gods are nothing. Very much a different mindset, and this is where biblical theology of the Old Testament can help us in understanding this passage. We also have that the Babylonian gods are not able to speak and do not have a creative word. Uh, God calls them into court in Isaiah 41 and says, show me any time that you predicted the f future, uh, an action that was going to happen in the future, and it came to pass. And the verdict of that trial is 
You can't. There's nothing because you are not God's. Another polemic is the cutting of the sea monster. Remember, Marduk was the one that cut the sea monster, and we referred to it earlier. Isaiah looked back and said, um, Awake, uh, wake up, O arm of the Lord. Do what you did then, now. Strike the sea monster again, and this would be play right into the theology of Babylon. God is the sea monster killer, not, uh, not Marduk. In fact, we have a, we have a little uh, humorous um, take on that in Psalm 104. Because in Psalm 104, God says that uh, in the sea are the Leviathan, the, sea, the great sea creatures. Leviathan would be another word for Rehav, it'd be another word for the, the, the chaos monster that, uh, in the mythologies of the ancient world. And it says in Psalm 104 that God made these Leviathan to sport with, to sport against, to play with. Now, it might be that there's a translation that says he, he made them to frolic in the sea. But another interpretation is he made them as his cosmic tub toys. Uh, when you think about it, these, these are no problem for God. These are just his tub toys. If you've ever seen a child in the tub with, with a tub toy, wreaks havoc. Um, that's how powerful God is with respect to any so-called God of Babylon. Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. It gives us the most complete picture of what God is doing, particularly what God is doing with Israel in the future, and I would argue also that uh, transitions into the church. And it is permeated with the doctrine of God as creator who is, as creator, doing works reminiscent of that original creation. Well, if we, if we have this as a major theme in the Old Testament, how about the New Testament? And let's go to the end of the book to see what happens there. We have two times early on that the Lord Jesus Christ is praised. The first of these is because he created all things. The second of these is because he's redeemed from the nations a people for himself. Uh, in chapters four and five. He is the one who is worthy to do these actions and to be praised because he is the creator and the redeemer. We also have direct statements that his work, uh, that he is the creator or that his work is a creative work. Uh, Chapter 10, the creator's work is about finished. Uh, The angel says, worship the one who made heaven and earth. Behold, I'm making all things new. Uh, Again, we we hear an echo of Isaiah's description resting upon the original creation. We have the suggestions of creation and a return to Eden as well. Christ will say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Well, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He, He started it off and he's going to end it. There is the undoing of the curse at the end of the age because the seed of woman will be shown to be victorious over the seed of the serpent, an allusion to the Proto-Evangelion of, uh, of the book of Genesis. There's an undoing of the curse in that you have no more tears, no more death, no more pain, and no more curse upon the earth. Uh, we would see Genesis 3 as a likely um, allusion. We have the suggestion of creation or a return to Eden in that we have the presence of the tree of life. It was in Eden. It's in the eternal state. It's used in both places. We have a river that runs through Eden. We have a river that runs through the, uh, the, the, the um, eternal state, the, um, 
the future. Um, we have uh, a subduing of the, of the one who is greater, the greater son of David. He is the one that will rule in the midst of his enemies. Remember early on it said that uh, we, we pointed out that be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, a theme that runs through from that point on is that the regular man is not going to subdue, but that would be brought into focus in the son of David who would rule in the midst of his enemies. And Psalm 110 that makes that point is quoted several times in the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who will ultimately subdue. He is the one that will ultimately rule. We have no sun, moon, or night because any vestige of any false god any place of darkness, which is sometimes associated with moral darkness, that's been done away, and we have a new heaven and a new earth. Well, so much for the end of the story, but all of that would pale if we didn't have something that uh, reminded us or taught, taught us that Jesus is the creator-redeemer who is at work, and happily, we do. We have uh, what... what at first appears to be three very um, shocking verses that uh, Jesus of Nazareth is the creative word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and if you read through 1 John 1, 1 to 5, uh, John 1, 1 to 5, you see that there are allusions to light and darkness. Darkness was not able to, to overpower the light. Uh, this is the divine word. The second member of the Trinity is God in, the, uh, in Genesis 1 who is doing the creating. We have in uh, that his... Um, in Colossians, all things were created through him, instrument, and for him, goal. And in him, all things hold together. The, the creator, redeemer, even now has all things holding together by, the, by his power. Uh, we have in Hebrews, uh, in an effort to show that Christ is better than anything you can imagine, he is the one through whom God created the world. And our salvation is a new creation. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. The old has passed away. All things have become new. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are fashioned by the potter, Romans 9, 18 to 24. And that potter theme goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God fashioned mankind, and same word, potter, and breathed into him the breath of life. And even our post-salvation experience is described in terms of a continuing reminiscence of creation. And so we are to put off the old self. That's a, an ongoing thing. We put off, we put on. We, we put off the old self um, and put on the new self created in righteousness. Those who suffer, um, true sufferers, entrust their souls to a faithful creator, there's a creator at work. We can trust him through the sufferings of our life. In fact, when we go to Romans, which is the Isaiah of the New Testament, the most complete picture of what God is doing, uh, Romans particularly uh, 1 to 9, giving us this great treatise on redemption. There's also redemption in the latter part of Romans, but, but the doc more doctrinal part is in the first part. The implications of that in uh, 
in 12 to 16, but, but 9, to, uh, 9 to 11 is a passage that, that outlines what God is doing in creation. And it begins with God talking about, uh, Paul talking about how God um, put into the heavens certain features so that anyone can, looking at it can, can observe certain invisible attributes of God. Not everything about God, but only two that are mentioned. His eternal power, there's something very powerful out there, and his godness. It isn't me. These things should have prompted them to follow this God that they had heard of from their forebearers, but instead they turned and they became wicked and they worshiped other gods and they became vain in their imaginations. God gave them over. He allowed them to continue. He kept allowing them to continue. And that's where we get the stories from Babylon that are garbled but have points of contact with the original creation but are also quite different. And at a point in time, God revealed to Moses what did happen. That, that shows us why there can be commonality with some of the features of the Babylonian creation and flood stories and why, on the other hand, there are such stark differences. John Oswald's book, The God Among the Myths, is important along these lines. Romans end, that section of Romans ends with these words, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, source, through him, um, process, and to him, goal, are all things to whom be glory forever. To him, to him be glory forever. In, in describing this great drama of redemption, it begins speaking of the creator, it ends with the creator. This inclusio is not, uh, is not accidental. This inclusio, I think, is to show us that this is a major feature in the doctrine of redemption. We have the reminiscence or the repetition, uh, the, the echo of the original creation days in our salvation. Uh, and so, for example, God who caused the light to shine in darkness uh, has shown in our hearts. Um, the light, Christ, shine, shone in darkness and it was not able to overpower it, John 1. Um, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. The, the fellowship that was lost in Eden has now been restored, though imperfectly until we see, him face, and we see Christ face to face, but it is the beginning of that process. We have salvation in uh, the days of the creation story in the image of God, for believers are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We did not lose the image of God as reflected in Adam, as reflected in mankind early on, but we take on the image of the final Adam, which goes beyond that, which is even better than that. Believers are being transformed into the image of the glory of the Lord. Believers are being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created them. This ongoing practice of our faith. We can't get into it uh, too much, but we have be from beginning to end the God as gardener motif. And just very briefly, God plants a garden and puts man and e uh, Adam and Eve into it. God, uh, it says in Exodus 15, just after, the, just after the experience at the Red Sea, that you will take them and plant them in the land. Uh, that's a function of the farmer. And we see that elaborated in Isaiah where he says God had a vineyard 
He planted Israel in the land. He expected fruit. He didn't get any from that. What's he going to do? He's going to rip it apart. Jesus then will say, I'm the true vine. My father is an husbandman, if you're reading the old King James there. He is the, he is the uh, gardener. And anyone who abides in me and my words abide in them, they'll bring forth much fruit because the gardener will prune it. Israel was the vine that did not give fruit, but the, the new people of God in the New Testament, the, the true children of Abraham with the DNA of faith of Abraham, these are the ones who, whom God will prune to bring forth the fruit he desires. And then we have the whole thing of the Lord of the harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest, that great mission field as he sends out the disciples. And at the very end of the age, he says to the angels, gather the harvest, separate the wheat and the tares. So this theme of God as gardener is, is uh, pervasive through Scripture, and it is, uh, it is found to be reminiscent, or it's found to be a major component in our redemptive story. We don't have time to go into more detail on the idea that there is a partial undoing of the curse, keeping in mind that man and woman were not cursed in Genesis, they were punished. There is a partial, um, there's, a, there's a partial undoing of that punishment in that the fellowship we had with God on the mountain in, in Eden, Eden was on a mountain, water flowed out and watered the entire earth, even before the fall, water flowed downhill. It's on a mountain, and it gives, it gives water to the entire world. We're told that we come to a mountain. Um, we, we have come to Mount Zion. Uh, we, can, we can compare this with the mountain theology of the Old Testament, um, if we had time. We pass through the cherubim to get to God, and we're confronted by the word of God that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews tells us. And we enter into the throne room of God, which is the Holy of Holies, because Christ has torn the veil. On the veil was the representation of the cherubim, which represented the entrance into the Garden of Eden. And Hebrews tells us that we stand naked before our creator. We stand naked before the one with whom we have to do. Because we've passed the word, which is, has the sword, which turns every which way. Uh, double-edged. You can cut this way, you can cut this way. The cherubim had, had a sword that, that cut various ways. It moved about. Um, we are able to have access to the Holy of Holies. It is, as it were, an entrance into fellowship with God in Eden once again. The last Adam undoes the work of the first Adam, according to Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. The New Testament sees Christ as the creator-redeemer. The whole Bible highlights this theme. But that's only part of a larger summary, and that is that the creator-redeemer is at work to reestablish a relationship with his own from among the nations for his glory. Many theologians will try to boil down a particular testament into one word, Douglas Moo, the idea of realm or kingdom for the New Testament. And certainly that's a, that's a huge theme in the, in the New Testament, rather. In the Old Testament, Kaiser, with the, the idea of promise and then later fulfillment, that's a, that's a huge theme that runs throughout. Or Gentry with the idea of covenant. Uh, who can deny that that's a big deal in Scripture? But can we really subsume all of the message in one word? Um, that would be difficult. 
we would suggest that a phrase or a summary statement might work, and this has served me well through the years. Creator-Redeemer will highlight such things as sovereignty, covenant, revelation, judgment, Calvary, the work of Christ, eschatology. Reestablishing a relationship will give us divine, divine personness of God, predestination, election, making of disciples, adoption as his children. From among the nations for his glory gives us the mission of Israel, which was to be a contrast society in this land bridge between Europe and Asia and Africa and display what, uh, what a kingdom of God should look like. We are then said to go to the entire world. And uh, it's not just in Jerusalem that we're worshiping anymore. It's everywhere in spirit and in truth. It also speaks of our goal, which is to bring glory to God. At this point, we, we need to have a caution whenever we try to, to summarize something so vast as the Old Testament. And that is that uh, not every passage is going to have elements of this, of this, uh, this rubric or this, this summary. Each passage, each book needs to be allowed to speak its own voice in its own context. And another question is, we're not going to figure out what God says. The very Isaiah that, uh, that talks about how uh, this creator is going to work to redeem Israel once again uh, and bring them back into the land in what is like a new creation. That very same prophet says, you don't think the way I do? You don't act the way I do? I have an effectual word that goes forth and it will not return until it has done its work, unlike Marduk. This does help us with the wisdom literature. The idea of putting the, putting the wisdom literature under the umbrella of the creation is helpful. We tend to think of those passages that say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But those, there are some great creation passages in the, in the wisdom literature. Uh, Proverbs 8, uh, Proverbs chapter 8. We have... Uh, we have at the end of Job, God says to Job, Our, did you create and can you sustain the, sustain the creation? Ecclesiastes, this gloom and doom, ends up by saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And I think this helps us because it answers the question, how can God commend those other men that were found outside of Israel who had great wisdom? It says of Solomon, uh, uh, he's even greater than these guys. And so the idea that, uh, that a person in a foreign country can observe what God has put into creation, a la Proverbs 8, uh, and, and derive principles of how God's world works seems to me is indicative of the observation that uh, it's because God put it there in his creation. And so I'd commend that to you as a way of bringing the wisdom literature into its proper place. This is what God is about. I want my life to be about what God's about. This is his program from start to finish. And if we're going to do something that is eternally worthwhile, if we're going to have a significant life that counts, it has to be along these lines of aligning ourselves with the great work of this creator-redeemer. We are to obey this creator of the world and take the message to the entire world. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by your word and the challenge that it presents. 
We are grateful that you brought us into a relationship with yourself. We pray that we might align ourselves with what you are doing in the world and that we might tell others of this creator to a world who has a different creation myth. May we be able to gently and persuasively counter with the scripture and show them through the relationship we have with you and with others that you are a great God and worthy to be praised. We thank you for the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to follow him today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.